Um, Paul actually tells us in the New Testament that we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. So we covered the body last week. So tonight what we're going to do is cover the soul. Um, Our title for tonight is Submitting Our Souls. As Christians, we have the perfect spirit of Christ living inside of us. So just like we have to submit the the body to the spirit, we have to submit our souls, which the souls would be like our hearts and minds, thoughts and attitudes. It's the seat of our emotions. And Ephesians 4.23, to tie into our theme of refresh, says, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitude. Um, And Ange pulled, which is the same part of Psalm 23 we're pulling from tonight, verse 2, where it talks, where it says that the shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. So when we submit our souls to the spirit, he actually renews and restores our thoughts and attitudes. Now, I mentioned my husband at the get-go because one, he prayed for me, but two, I'm also very proud of him. I'm glad to be his wife. But I also mentioned him as a little caveat story into our message. Ah, but I'm throwing myself under the bus for this one. Um, Because I mentioned him to show that I am proof of being a work in progress at getting this submission thing down. You can laugh if you know me. I'm not good at it. Thank you. I think that was Olivia. Was that Olivia? Okay. (laughs) We're supposed to submit ourselves to God and each other, right? Yeah, okay. And as Olivia knows, she laughed. And I know this too. I struggle with submitting to people, okay? And then obviously sometimes God, though I wouldn't like to admit that one as much. As you may know, I'm kind of a my way or the highway kind of person without the grace of God. Um, (laughs) That was my husband. Um, (laughs) How many of you guys have taken those Enneagram personality tests? A lot. Our whole leadership team has taken them. So I took them and I scored really strongly. It rates you on a one, two, and eight and gives, or one, two, and nine and gives different personalities based on your number. And I score the highest in the one and the eight. So get ready. The one is the moral perfectionist, which means I see things black and white with very little gray. Sorry, Blaze. Um, and the eight is the protective challenger, which means I'm not afraid to get in your face if you don't see it the way I do. that's a strong combination not really fit for submission like in the natural they liken snow they liken eights to snowplows isn't that great um so would you like to show this pick i like to the next pick i it should be on there i like to think of this as blaze's face to really you're a snowplow this is one of our engagement pictures so anyone want to guess what blaze is if you don't know if you know don't say it we're the same. <laughs> he's an eight and a one, too, except he's a way stronger eight, so he's a stronger snowplow, and I'm a way stronger one. Um, I'm right, right? Not true. So <laughs> to say submission is not a struggle would be a lie, and you better believe God is using our marriage to kick me in the butt on this and make me more like him in the times that I easily submit or the times I fight more. That would be the uh, laughing. Funny. You can take it down if you want to. Um, Lost where I was. Oh, yeah. The submission for me is not so, the struggle I deal with in submission is not so much submission of the body, but submission of the soul, my will, and my attitude. 
I'm learning a whole new level of submission, not just based on duty, which is part of my personality as one. I do what I'm supposed to because that's my responsibility, but a submission based on love. So choosing to lay down my rights, my pride, and humble myself because I love and trust God and because I love and trust Blaze. And I want to show both of them the honor they deserve. So that's what we're, I should get brownie points for that one. That was a good line. Um, so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. We're going to let the spirit renew our thoughts and attitude by submitting our pride to take up humility. So this is the age-old temptation of man. It's what caused the fall of man in the garden, and it is what has been the bane of the church ever since. Dirty, icky pride. We don't like it. We're going to look at John the Baptist and his disciples to learn more about how to submit our pride and take up humility. So a little backstory, John's ministry is thriving and reaches its pinnacle when Jesus comes to be baptized by him. And at Jesus' baptism, we see John submit to him and point others to them. And after this, John's ministry takes a backseat to the ministry of Jesus. I keep looking away because I get excited and then I lose my spot. Bear with me for a second. At Jesus' baptism, we see John submit to him and point others to him. I just said that. So after a while, John's disciples take notice that less and less people are coming to John and more and more people are coming to Jesus. So they go to John and voice their concern. Enter pride. Not a good thing. John's disciples are upset because Jesus who baptized is now baptizing more people than them. They see Jesus' rise in influence and ministry as a hit on John's ministry instead of the fulfillment, which it actually was. So John's disciples are coveting their ego over God's will, their glory over his glory. And honestly, they're more focused on their position versus their posture, which is what we're going to look on tonight, how we should let go of position and instead take a posture of humility. Our sinful nature's attitude, our sinful nature's posture is pride, but the spirit of Christ is an attitude of humility. So if we will submit to the new spirit inside of us, he will refresh us by renewing our mind and heart to think and feel like he does, which is a very good thing. Submitting our pride to receive Christ's humility has to happen in order to live in his grace and fullness. So then the question is, what exactly is humility? Humility is a true and realistic view of one's importance. So it's not about seeing ourselves without value, but it's instead having an accurate understanding of what and who is truly important. We're going to look at John the Baptist's response to his disciples and how he chose humility over pride. And we're also going to see the different postures he chose to stay humble. So the verse we're going to stick on tonight is John chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. And this is how John responds to his disciples. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So here John is on a mission to let his disciples know who he is. But his mission is that they would know how unimportant he is. Guys, this is insane for our human nature. 
to understand. He wants them to know how unimportant he is, while a lot of the times, and I include me in this, most of us are trying to prove how important we are. We're grasping at straws so people would notice what we have and can bring to the table. So how is he able to live life with such an open hand, not caring about his own importance or what people thought of him? He put himself in a posture to receive. And the first correction John gives his disciples to their pride is that first statement, um, verse 27, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. John knew that nothing he had came from himself, but it was a gift of one much greater. John was actually a little backstory, more backstory on John. He was set aside for God's purpose from conception. His life was prophesied hundreds of years before as he would be the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. He was filled with the spirit in the womb and named by God himself, not by his father or mother. And he is known as the greatest prophet of all time, according to the old covenant, which was before Christ. But in the new covenant, after Jesus, he's actually known as the least of all. I find that interesting since we're talking about humility. But none of that was anything from himself. And he knew that it was nothing that he had worked hard enough to achieve. He knew they were gifts freely given by his heavenly father. And that spirit, the spirit that gave him everything, renewed his attitude so he could say in humility, which is what we need to say, I am and have nothing on my own. He echoed David when David is, you know, what we're going off of from Psalm 23, talking about the good shepherd and us being sheep. Tom pointed this out a few weeks ago in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, that David says, Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. James 1.17 says a very similar thing. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. This tells us we can do no good apart from God. There's nothing we can achieve or create outside of him who is our creator and the creator of all things. He gives to those he see fits and he takes away as he determines, but our pride and our ego make it hard to accept that truth. They tell us lies that it actually is about us and we should get credit or on the flip side, it's all on us when something fails. And when we start to listen listen to that voice, we can fall into the trap of comparing our abilities to the abilities of others instead of living in the grace God's given us to do with what he's gifted us. Have many of you been there before where you've compared yourself to somebody else? Oh, yeah. Romans 12.3 gives us a little kick in the butt. He puts things into perspective. He says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. One of the worst things we can do as the body of Christ is to start comparing our worth and usefulness with others because it instantly cuts humility's head off and it allows pride to instantly pop back up in that moment we do it. So we start trying to take position instead of allowing um, ourselves to simply receive. And the honest truth is that they're always going, I'm going to say this one more time, pay attention here. There are always going to be people that are more gifted and less gifted than you and me. 
And the hard truth about that, as hard as it is to accept, it's okay. And I want you to hear this too with that truth. The greater gifts of some do not negate or diminish the work of ours that fall shorter. That's just reality. You will, will never be most likely the best or worst at anything. There's always someone ahead or behind of us behind us. Um, the truth is that all hands are needed and useful. God's, God gifts and uses us as he sees fit based on his good judgment. So the question then is, and this is a hard one to swallow, I'm preaching to myself, if God is pleased to give to others more ability and success than to us, will we be upset with him and see him as unjust, unwise, or partial? I hope we don't. We are given the grace to be faithful with what he's given us. And if we are faithful with it, it will return to us many times over. It's his grace that makes our work, big or little, effective and fruitful. Nothing else. His grace alone. However, God does also say that he gives to us in accordance with the measure of faith that we have. So if you don't feel you're doing as much for the kingdom as you believe God wants, I encourage you to ask him to increase your faith and put yourself in a posture to receive from him, not in order to be noticed or lifted higher than others, but the opposite, to lift his name higher as well as lift up those around you. We posture ourselves to receive by being desperate. So desperation is the posture God responds to. So if desperation is what we need, what should we be desperate for? Or another question, is what should we posture ourselves to receive? Any thoughts? What's the what is the one thing we need to receive? Did somebody say it? His presence, Jesus. I mean, a Sunday school answer. Um, but it's as simple as it is. That's what it's all about: deep, intimate relationship with the Father. We need to be on our knees in prayer, desperately asking him to reveal himself to us and increase our hunger for him. And so I want to ask you guys a series of questions of how long has it been since? Okay, and then I want you to think about this. So in that desperation, how long has it been since you spent time in the quiet just waiting to hear his voice, like Tom talked about a few weeks ago? How long has it been since you've been about to explode because of something you read in the Word that morning? How long has it been since you've been moved in a significant way when singing, listening to a song about the amazing love He has for you? We had really got good opportunity to experience that tonight because in tragedy, God has a way of really letting us experience His presence more because we're desperate for it. The end-all be-all is that we need him, period. And I'm not asking you guys these questions without asking myself these questions. And in fact, I'm asking them because I've been convicted on them. So I want to encourage us together to posture ourselves to receive like we never have. Because God gives to those he trusts, which means that he gives to his friends. He gives to us when we seek not our own gain, but we seek to do his will and be used by him. Then he gives us his spirit without limit, without measure. And let's be real, his spirit is the doorway to every other gift possible. So if we have that, we have everything we need, which is awesome. So in positioning himself to receive, John is 
also showing his disciples not only who he is, which as we said before, is nothing apart from him, but who he is not as well as who the one is he's receiving from. And he goes on in verse 28 to say, you yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. So here John likens himself to the friend and an attendant of the groom. He's using a wedding analogy. Guys, I could talk about this for a long time. As could Nicole. Um, if you would put up the collage of pictures, that would be helpful. These are some pictures of our wedding day, May 19th, almost five months ago. It was literally, and I don't say this lightly, it was like the perfect day. And one of the reasons it was the perfect day is because of the people in these pictures who were our awesome um, bridesmaids and groomsmen. And you're like, and I mean, obviously there are a lot of other factors that made the day perfect. God would be number one. Him, you know, would be the, like, just everything. It was awesome. But one of the reasons the bridesmaids and groomsmen made that day perfect is because what is their role? What's their job? Yeah, to do everything for you. That's not very humble. Um, but you know what I mean. Like, I say that jokingly, but seriously, these people were rock stars. Several of them are in this room, okay? You can see who they are. Um, they, they were doing things before the actual day. They were doing tons of stuff on the day. They planned showers, bachelor parties. They listened to all our plans beforehand and helped wherever they could. Day of, they did everything from pray for us to help us get ready. The girls helped hold my dress in the bathroom. That's something that every bride goes through. The guys got our food and drink refills during the reception. They were awesome. Um, <laughs> amen. And one of the sweetest things they did was to take our personal gifts and our love letters to each other before we saw each other that day at the ceremony. Their posture was exactly what John is talking about and what we need to take, which is a posture to serve. Um, another definition of humility is to put oneself low or to make lowly. Now, this is not something new for John. Um, it's something he has done throughout his life and is doing yet again with great confidence. He is consistent with his testimony here and at the baptism of Jesus. And I'm going to read Matthew 3.11. This is what John says before he baptizes Jesus. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John, in essence, keeps saying, don't look to me, don't put me on a pedestal. There's someone so much greater, so look at him. He puts his lowly position in respect to Jesus' position and refers to himself as an attendant and even a slave to help the disciples grasp the truth. So the question is, is then, how is John so easily able to let go of his position and give it to someone else? Why was he so glad to serve the bridegroom instead of actually be the bridegroom? And the answer is, it's because he knew who he was. And more importantly, he knew who God was. He was confident in his identity. 
He knew he was created to be a child of God, created to do wonderful works for him and his glory, just like we sang. These songs are perfect, Bailey. Um, it's exactly um, what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet as well. Um, I'm not going to actually read that verse, but Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was God's son, given all power and authority. The world was not his home. He came to save it. And out of that strong sense of identity, identity and security, Jesus willingly and humbly took off his robes, his entitlement, his position, his rights to wrap himself in a servant's towel and serve the disciples, which were his friends. To be able to identify as nothing and take up our titles and let go of our rights to serve God and those around, around us takes the highest level of confidence in identity that there is. Humility and service is not about self-deprecation or false humility or looking at ourselves as less than. That's actually a twisted form of pride. I would not do that. Humility is that we look to ourselves less and look to the needs of others more. Like Jesus and John the Baptist, the Spirit renews our attitudes so we come not to be served but to serve. So how should we posture ourselves to serve? With confidence okay i think a lot of times we think of service and humility as being a doormat and being humble and serving is not about being a doormat it's being confident in who we are and what we can do because of what we've been given to meet the needs of those around us with the confidence of being a child of god we should be standing and knocking at the doors of heaven for him to pour out his spirit so we can be used to touch people here on earth we're a body who believes in the full power of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. Would you say that is right? Yeah. Amen. Me too. But in that, God actually convicted me a few weeks ago. It was actually a week or so before retreat of the difference of being open to be used by his spirit versus desiring to be used by him. I realized that, yes, I was open. If he comes and flashes a neon sign in front of me or hits me with a two by four and says, go speak this word of encouragement to that person or go do or whatever that's not of my own knowledge. Okay, yes, I will go do it. But was I actively seeking to be used regularly in the gifts of the spirit? No, I had not been. And so my question for us is, are we actively seeking to be used in the gifts of the Spirit? Or are we just open? And by that, I mean we've kind of left it on a shelf. Like the verse, of, right, the, when John is speaking right before he baptizes Jesus, he said, Jesus is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Like as Christians, we have the awesome gift of, one, the Holy Spirit coming inside of us to give us salvation, but two, him coming upon us to fill us with power, right? To be used in all these crazy supernatural gifts that's a difference between hand tools and power tools. But are we living, are we seeking after that one and two, are we living in that? So I'm going to ask you another series of questions. When was the last time? When was the last time God gave you a prophetic word to speak over someone's life. When was the last time you prayed for someone to be healed, big or small? A headache or a chronic illness? When was the last time you were given an increase of faith 
to bang on the doors of heaven on behalf of another who needed it desperately. Like the attendant who listens to the voice of the bridegroom and then takes messages to the bride, those gifts and love letters like ours did, we need to listen to his voice, ignore the others around us, other voices outside of Jesus, I mean, and take his messages to his bride, which is the people around us, even in a place like service, during worship, during response time, life group, when you're walking into class. We need to humble ourselves to serve as God desires for his glory, and not just when it's convenient and comfortable for us. And when we truly allow God to renew our attitudes, there's a very deep and very strong fruit of the Spirit that grows as we accept who we are and who we are not, and we live in that more and more. And John speaks to it in the last part of his address to the disciples we're going to look at. He says, Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Another definition of humility is the freedom from pride or arrogance. Humility is freedom from everything outside of Christ. So that would be freedom from titles, freedom from expectations, comparisons, comp competition, freedom from sin itself. And what does freedom bring? We experience this a little more than we had at fall retreat. Any thoughts? I'm a response. I like responses. What freedom brings? Joy. Smiles, celebrations, laughter, shouts of excitement. Um, when we truly put ourselves in a posture to serve Jesus out of love, we automatically set ourselves up for joy. And the last posture we have to surrender to is a posture of joy. And as fun as it may seem like joyful, happy, Everybody wants this. It honestly may be the most costly one for us. John says Jesus' success brings him joy, which he explains that it's the process of becoming less and less while another becomes greater and greater. It's what he's hoped for. It's what he's longed for. It's his ultimate destiny. The success of his ministry is the decrease of himself. Guys, what he's saying in that sentence right there is that he has found joy in dying to himself. That sounds really joyful, right? Death does not sound joyful. John 12, 24 says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Death is a necessary part of life. And in fact, it's required for new life to grow in the natural world. So how much more is it true in the spiritual world? There's a deep joy that comes when we lay our lives down, when we live for him and not ourselves. There's a joy in surrender and there's joy in death because there is joy in new life. That's why even after we prayed for Tyler and Morgan um, because of the tragedy of losing Blakely, we worshiped and we spent time seeking after God because there's a close, just like Tom said, there's a closeness that he lets us experience that sometimes, a lot of times, honestly, we wouldn't experience outside of moments like that. But there's also a deeper joy if we continue to look to him just like they are that we experience on the other side. Obviously, there's still a lot of pain on earth, but there's joy too when we're reunited on the other side of heaven. As much as we want that joy in general, not talking about specific tragedies, but just the daily process of dying to ourselves, 
we fight the road to get us there. And that's because, yet again, pride gets in the way. I think a lot of us would say we could surrender and die for Jesus, but for another human, that's another story. You know, just like anybody, maybe somebody we love a whole lot. But it's funny because it's truly one and the same thing. Like Jesus says, whatever you do for one of the least of these, you've done for me. Too many times we fall prey to the same attitude as the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. When the, when the younger brother made the right choice, um, coming back from his life of sin, he was not only brought back, but he was elevated in position and given some of what had already been given to the elder brother when the inheritance had been divided. So the, other, the older brother got jealous and bitter. And the father explains and tries to encourage him by saying this in Luke 15, 32. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but he is found. And I think it's cool because this um, we had to celebrate. This is literally the same joy, the um, Greek word, that John is talking about when he's addressing his disciples. The older brother is frustrated, just like the disciples, because he feels his works aren't getting noticed. What should rightfully be his is being given to someone else, and another is being celebrated more than him. But the father reassures him of his love and that everything he has is his. He's received it. But he also reminds him that he must celebrate his brother's new life. John, unlike the disciples, understood this principle. And instead of being jealous like the disciples thought he should be he actually celebrated the fact that jesus took the spotlight and i want you guys to hear this next part it's hard but it's so true if we are truly to kill pride and let the spirit increase humility we must celebrate the work of god and others but there there's like two sides of it i think a lot of times we it's easy for us to celebrate when that means the work the spirit does to draw them closer to jesus and experience what he's given us i think it can be harder when we're celebrating the work he does that takes him beyond what we've experienced and been given and how we've been used so i want us to be real you don't have to actually respond um but how do we react when people excel beyond us do we get joyful or do we get jealous joyful would mean we're choosing humility and living in that and jealousy would mean we're choosing our pride and living in that in chi alpha as you know, we are heavy on discipleship. We throw that word around all the time and we try to live it out as best we can. And we always say that the mark of a good discipler is that they raise up people better than themselves. So that means we should want those we love, lead, and do life with to go farther than us. Whether we're walking in front of them, beside them, or, a, um, did I say in front? Behind them beside them at any point in life so that means that that can be hard right you want to be like my one personality and all that stuff type a I want to be the best it's hard to be other um but that means that a win for someone else is a win in the kingdom which is a win for us we get jealous when we focus on ourselves which is pride and we get joyful when we focus on God and his kingdom and his glory which is humility so the last question we're going to talk about is how do we put ourselves in a posture of joy? 
Like we stated at the beginning, we have to die to ourselves. But here's the truth. Anything we serve brings death. And we all serve something, okay? We were created to worship something. And to worship means to serve something. So then the question becomes, what kind of death will you choose? I know that's heavy, but I think it puts it in perspective. Serving anything outside of Christ, which is sin, brings death with no hope. But serving Christ brings death too, but it's to death to sin, which is a death to pride, which brings life in its fullest. Another way we can put ourselves in a posture of joy is to choose to seek out ways to lift up our friends and coworkers in others' eyes rather than ourselves. Pray for God to reveal the fullness of himself to those around us, not just what we have grasped already, but what he can give. And then celebrate. Be joyful. Be excited. Be thankful about the goodness that he does to others, individually and collectively. Because the more we choose to celebrate God's kingdom and not just what he does in us personally, the more we will live in humility with a whole lot of joy. And so in closing... The Holy Spirit wants to renew our thoughts and attitudes. And to give space to let the Spirit renew us, we have to surrender our pride in order to live in humility. So we need to place ourselves in a posture to receive, in a posture to serve, and a posture that's full of joy. This requires us to submit our souls to a spirit because, as we've said every single point, these are not hu natural human reactions. These are not natural responses. They are supernatural ones. This is a renewing that has to be done over and over again each day, each moment. So if you would, go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes,